morning. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning as we continue through Matthew's gospel. For those of you who were not here last weekend, let me give you a little bit of a recap of, of where we've been and where we're at now. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for, uh, for a, a, quite a few months, really. And during the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen Jesus teach on a number of different topics, really laying out here is the, uh, the standard of conduct for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which as we examine, we realize we cannot meet that standard in and of ourselves perfectly. Right? It's not going to happen. The good news is that Jesus tells us at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he is the one who fulfills it. He's the one who can meet that standard for us. When Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he finishes, the crowds there that are listening to him are astonished at his authority. They're astonished at the authority with which Jesus teaches. We see that in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. And what Matthew does next is he takes us on a tour, really, of Jesus' authority on display through Jesus' works. Matthew's, Matthew chapters 8, 9, and even into 10 a little bit are, are a collection of Jesus' miracles healings, casting out demons, calming the storm. Really an amazing portion of scripture. And there's a word that pops up again and again, and that word is authority. Authority. Last week, we saw Jesus heal the leper. And this is the first of a, a set of three healings that we're just getting into. Um, and this morning, we're really getting into the second one. As we continue to see Jesus' authority over the natural world, over illness, over the human body over sickness. And we'll see something very similar to the leper's faith as we examine the centurion in his appeal to Jesus to heal his servant. So start, uh, if you would, in verse chapter, uh, verse 5, excuse me, of chapter 8. We're going to read down to verse 13. This is our text for this morning. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. As we heard in Psalm 19, your word is perfect. And as we heard in Psalm 19, your word has a direct effect in our lives. Opening our eyes, making wise the simple, restoring the soul. And Lord, as we come to this scene of Jesus' healing, this account of a miracle, we pray that you would be at work in us. That as we see the centurion's faith, as we see the authority of Christ, 
pray that you would exalt your Son before us. That we would see the sufficiency of our Savior. And that our love for Him would grow. We pray you would teach us today from your Word, O Lord. And I pray, Lord, for your help in proclaiming it. That I would only say that which is in agreement with your Word. That which is faithful to the text of Scripture. Lord, we need your Word. So, Lord, as we hear it today, we pray for your help in all of this, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as we go through the flow of this morning's text, there's really four main points that we see. The first is the centurion's request made known. Next, after that, we see Jesus' authority perceived by the centurion. And then we see Israel's lack of faith rebuked, and finally, the servant's condition healed. Jumping into our first point, the centurion's request made known, verses 5 through 7. We backtrack a little bit to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, really the beginning of chapter 8. We see that Jesus is coming down off of the mountain. He's traveling. This is where he meets the leper on the road. And he's traveling to the city of Capernaum. This is a city a few miles away from where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And now, as we see in verse 5, Jesus has finally arrived. He is entering the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a smaller town. It was not a major city, um, but it wasn't insignificant either. It was actually a semi-important town. This was the city that Jesus made his home base. It's very likely Jesus owned a home here and would use this um, in between stops in his preaching ministry in the early years. Now, Capernaum was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and so fishing was a major staple of the economy there. But it wasn't just a fishing village. You see, the Empire of Rome had established a, a custom station and a garrison of soldiers in that place. And this becomes particularly relevant given who we meet next in verse 5. As Jesus enters the city of Capernaum, who do we meet? We meet a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion who approaches Jesus and appeals to him, just like the leper did in last week's text. Now, we read about centurions in the Bible all the time. We, we may be familiar with them, especially if you're a Roman history buff. Um, but for those of you who are not, right, it's important for us to understand who the centurions were. They weren't just any Roman soldier. Right? They weren't just uh, the, the private of the Roman army. No, a centurion was a prestigious officer who commanded around 100 men. Uh, they were military men who had worked their way up to their position. Right? They had worked hard. They were battle-tested. They were experienced soldiers who, even in this position of command, actively went into the field with their men to directly oversee them. They were very well respected in Rome and in the community at large. Uh, because of their position, they tended to be wealthy, uh, and they were able to make a pretty successful career out of being a centurion. This particular centurion that we're meeting this morning would have been stationed in Capernaum. He would have been in charge of the garrison there in that town. And so when we have that background information, what we see in verse 5 is not just some Roman soldier asking Jesus for help. What we see is the most important man in Capernaum, the most influential man in Capernaum, the most powerful man in Capernaum coming to Jesus. This is not a nobody. But there's something else we need to understand about the centurion. To be a Roman soldier, you had to take an oath to worship the gods of Rome. 
the Roman centurion here would have been a, a pagan, a Gentile, right? A worshiper of idols. And Matthew is writing to first century Jews. They would have not thought favorably about centurions, about the gods of Rome, about Roman soldiers. And, and add to this the fact that Rome has been occupying Judea. They've been oppressing the Jewish people there. So in other words, while the centurion was admired, he was important, he was prestigious, Luke even tells us he built a synagogue for the Jews in, in, in Capernaum. He would have been viewed with disdain in the larger Jewish community to whom Matthew's writing. Now, we might expect such an important man to approach Jesus in a very formal way, right? Maybe with his, his uh, foot soldiers behind him, with dignity, with pomp, maybe a fanfare of trumpets, something like that, right? Uh, it would be somewhat surprising for such a powerful and wealthy man to approach Jesus at all, in fact. Jesus is a preaching uh, teacher, right, who's traveling throughout the land. He's not a Roman official. What is he to the centurion? But not only does the centurion approach Jesus, but immediately he starts appealing to him. He is begging Jesus, imploring Jesus. He's coming to Jesus in a position of absolute humility. And we see why in verse 6. The centurion appeals to Christ and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now consider the very first word that the centurion begins his, his uh, conversation with Jesus here. Lord. Lord. Remember, this is the most important man in this town. And he addresses Jesus as Lord. This wealthy, prestigious man addresses Jesus as a superior Socially, this would not be true. As I mentioned last Sunday, in the Gospels, not everybody addresses Jesus as Lord. Right? Some address him as teacher. He'd be the scribes. The Pharisees don't address Jesus by any title at all. But those who address Jesus as Lord are coming to him by faith. That's a little, a little red flag for us. Faith is at work here. And Centurion acknowledges Jesus' lordship his power, his authority by using this term, as well as taking a remarkable posture of humility. That would be you know, akin to maybe there's a particular president you admired in history, right? And let's say that president came to you and said, oh, great citizen of the United States of America, right? And they, and they bowed down before you, right? That would be bizarre, wouldn't it? That would seem backwards. And yet, that's what the centurion is doing to Christ. He says, Lord, Lord. The leper, we saw last week, he had nothing to appeal to. No fame, no riches, no wealth, nothing. But by worldly standards, the centurion has everything to appeal to. But yet he addresses Jesus, not as sir, but as Lord. And as we look on in verse 6, we see the centurion's request. We see the reason he's approaching Jesus and begging him for help. Um, the centurion's servant is very, very ill. He's paralyzed. He's suffering from great pain. Luke's gospel tells us that the servant is actually at the point of death. This is an emergency. This is a desperate situation. We don't know what disease the servant was suffering from. Could have been any number of things, perhaps polio, something like that. Whatever it is, it's clearly debilitating, clearly painful, and apparently terminal. It's a very desperate situation here. Now, to many in Rome, this is just a servant, right? This is, this is like livestock, basically. This is replaceable. This is just another laborer. Your servant, what is that? 
But Luke tells us that this servant was actually very, very valuable to the centurion. Very valuable to the centurion. Now, it could be that the centurion considered this servant to be his only family. Uh, life as a centurion was constantly on the move. You were stationed here. You were stationed there. Centurions generally did not marry. They did not have children. They did not have families. And so this servant that the centurion comes to Jesus about could have been the only family that he had. It's very clear from the text the centurion cares very deeply about this servant. He is a compassionate man, a man who has mercy in his heart, so it seems. And it is this concern about his servant that drives the most powerful man in Capernaum to humbly beg Jesus for help. But at the same time, it's interesting because Matthew's account does not actually contain a request. There's no question here of Jesus, is there? The centurion just says, this is what's going on. This is the situation. He brings his problem to Christ. Confident in the mercy of Jesus, no doubt. That seems to be all he can do is to bring this problem to Christ. He's at his wit's end. How does Jesus reply? We see in verse 7, Jesus says to the centurion, I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. That's how it appears in the English. Uh, but there's actually a little bit more going on there um, that, that translations are catching up with. There's actually an extra I in the Greek here in this text. And what that does is basically turn this into a question. I will come heal him? Do you want me to come heal him? That's the essence of what Jesus is saying here. It's not just, okay, I'll come. The Greek tells us that Jesus is actually, I will come heal him? He's posing a question to the centurion. After all, there's something unusual about a pagan military officer seeking a Jewish teacher to heal his servant, isn't, isn't there? That's a little odd. Jews and Gentiles tended not to mix, especially since uh, most Jews thought they would be made unclean just by going into a Gentile's house. Now, Jesus does not believe this. This is not in God's law. This is a, a tradition of man. But there's a purpose to his question. And Jesus does this a lot of the times. He'll ask questions uh, just to help his audience to think a little bit more. As one commentator notes, Jesus' question to the centurion here, do you want me to come heal him? This actually provides an opportunity for the centurion to demonstrate his faith in response. And we see that in our second point, Jesus' authority perceived in verses 8 and 9. The centurion replies to Jesus, and he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion's not deterred by Jesus' question, and he actually replies in a very remarkable way. First, he acknowledges he is not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof, to enter his house. Now, this is a shocking thing for the most important man in Capernaum to say, isn't it? Right? Who, who would be unworthy to enter... Uh, who, who, who would be so great as a guest right, in this town that this man would be unworthy to have them? And yet that is what he says about Christ. If he's unworthy to have Jesus, who is worthy? But this again reveals the true humility of the centurion in his faith. He doesn't just believe Jesus has the power to heal his servant. He believes that Jesus himself is truly great. And in comparison, he sees himself as lowly and insignificant 
Jesus. Now, friends, do you consider yourself worthy of Jesus? Do you presume upon that? Do you, do you see your, your, your relationship to Christ as the result of a good decision you made? If you do, then you do not understand your sinfulness very much at all. Uh, we should think of Christ like the centurion did. We are absolutely unworthy of his grace and kindness. We are unworthy to know him, to be reconciled to him. And that's what makes the fact that he continues to love us and show us grace and mercy all the much more amazing. Because it has nothing to do with how worthy we are of receiving him. The opposite is true with us. And the centurion displays that here. Second, we see that the centurion tells Christ, Christ doesn't even need to come to his house to heal his servant. Look what he says in the, uh, the last part of verse 8 into verse 9. He says, Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. According to the centurion, all Jesus needs to do is say the word, and his servant will be healed. The centurion's correct about this. This is true. But the fact that he recognizes the scope of Jesus' power and authority, again, is indicative of the nature of his faith. There's no doubt in the centurion's mind that Jesus' ability to heal the servant with merely a word is possible. Jesus can do it. And really, all this comes down to the centurion's perception of Jesus' authority by faith. Through the eyes of faith, the centurion truly perceives the authority that Jesus possesses. And that's particularly brought out in verse 9. You see that there. The centurion explicitly acknowledges Jesus' authority here. And, and he kind of compares his own experience as a military man, as a man with a household, to Jesus' authority. The centurion is over nearly 100 men. He knows what it is to have authority over others. The centurion's also underneath tribunes, higher-ranking military officers. He knows what it is to be under authority. In other words, nobody knows authority better than the centurion himself does. He has a keen grasp on what that means and how it works. And the centurion suggests that he's aware Jesus, too, is both under authority and has authority over others. Now, the Roman centurion, no doubt, is not an accomplished theologian, right? He probably uh, is not well-trained in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Um, but it is clear from the text, he recognizes something about Christ. He recognizes Christ is under the authority of another, under the authority of God the Father. Make no mistake, though, the submission is in the human nature of Christ, right, as a man. In his earthly ministry, Jesus submits himself to the Father. We read in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus is born as a Jewish man under the Jewish law. He's under the authority of God in that way, and he submits himself to the will of the Father. And maybe the most explicit example of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And we see there Jesus submitting his human nature, his human will, to the Father's will. Of course, we know Jesus is fully God, right? His divine nature is equal to the Father, the Son. But his human nature is submitted under the authority of God. And the centurion recognizes this. Maybe he heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he's observed it in Jesus' healings. 
Maybe the centurion assumes it because all good Jews would consider themselves under the authority of God. But at the same time, the centurion perceives something else. He knows what it is to have authority over others, and he sees this in Christ. The centurion knows all it takes. When you're in a position of authority, all it takes is a word. Do this, go here, come here, do these things. And it's done. It requires nothing more than a command to be given. The centurion recognizes that Jesus has true authority over this world, over the natural realm, over the illness plaguing his servant. Now, the centurion, through the eyes of faith, understands the nature of Jesus' authority and has full confidence in Jesus as the authoritative one. Because we have to remember something here. The centurion is at his wit's end. He's at the end of his rope. He is desperate. He's not coming to Jesus cool and collected. Hey, my servant's feeling kind of under the weather. When you have time, maybe you could stop by and, and check it out, right? That's not how he comes to Christ, is it? He's coming to Christ desperate, desperate. His earthly authority, the centurion's earthly authority, his earthly experience, his money, his position can do nothing to help his servant. The centurion can do Absolutely nothing here. He is powerless to help. And so by faith, he goes to Jesus, the one who actually has the authority to deal with the problem. The centurion believes that Jesus is who he presents himself to be. And what's striking, right? what I love about the way the centurion goes about this and what he says is that he believes so highly in Jesus' power and authority in this matter that even though it's impossible for the centurion, the centurion talks about it in such a way that it's easy for Jesus. All you have to do, Jesus, is just say a word. As one commentator says, the man shows faith not only by acknowledging his own unworthiness, but also recognizing that Jesus' power is so great that this request is nevertheless small to him. A small request to Jesus. This text is certainly about the authority of Christ, but it's almost as much about the faith of the centurion as well. In the centurion, we have a model of faith. But not just of that. We have a model of intercession driven by faith. Intercession is going to God on behalf of other people. Right? All of us face problems. In our own lives, if we're in relationship with other people, we inevitably encounter problems they may be facing. We feel burdened by those things if we care about them. What are the problems in your life right now? Maybe it's an unbelieving family member. Maybe it's a financial difficulty. Maybe it is an illness. Maybe it's loss. Maybe it's a struggle with sin. What do we do with those problems? What do we do with those problems? Think about how you've handled those problems in the past. Do you try to tackle it in your own strength? I'm going to white-knuckle my way through this. I'm going to put together a plan. I'm going to come up with a solution. I'm going to just bury this and never deal with it. How do you deal with it? Tackling it by our own strength is perhaps the American way, right? Industrious, pioneers. That is not what faith in Christ would have us do. Learn from the centurion. 
bring those problems to Christ in prayer. Bring those things which are clearly outside of your power and ability, which is uh, most if not all things, to Jesus. To the one who has the authority and the ability to handle them according to his good will. And sometimes you may not even know how to phrase that request. You may not even know exactly what to say to, to Christ. You may not know. And that's okay. Because Jesus does not need uh, English words to know what is going on in your heart and your mind. You can bring those problems to Christ even in those moments where you may not be able to verbalize it. But bring those things to Jesus. Now you can imagine, as a first century Jew, this is pretty challenging to see the centurion as a good example. right? This is your enemy if you're a first century Jew. And yet, he's coming to Jesus. He has faith. And when Jesus hears the centurion's reply, when Jesus sees the centurion's faith here, he actually uh, responds in an unexpected way, a way that would have shocked Matthew's Jewish readers and the crowds surrounding Jesus in Capernaum, Capernaum all the more. That brings us to our third point, Israel's lack of faith rebuked. Verses 10 through 12. The, the first thing Jesus does when he hears the centurion's faith clearly displayed, verse 10 tells us, is marvel. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was amazed. He was astonished. This isn't just a figure of speech. Jesus is legitimately amazed at what he's hearing from the centurion. How can Jesus, who's fully divine, be amazed? Right? How is that possible? Well, again, we must remember Jesus has two natures united in one person. Two natures united in one person. His divine nature is omniscient, right? Knows all things. But his human nature is not in the same way. His human nature is like ours. Has the same natural limitations that we do, albeit without sin, right? Jesus learned what it was to live in this world, just like you and I do. Jesus didn't, uh, you know, come out of the womb and he was eating with a fork and knife and talking in fluent Aramaic, right? Jesus, as a man, learned. And had limitations on what he knew, just like you and I do. And in his human nature, Jesus marvels at the centurion here. He's amazed. This is genuine. And then Jesus does something really interesting. right? He uses this as a teaching moment, right? which again, Jesus does often. And in verse 10, we see that Jesus turns and says to those who are following him, and those are the crowds, right, who heard the Sermon on the Mount, who followed him down the mountain. Crowds that are probably, if not entirely, Jewish. Right? These are the same crowds who are astonished at Jesus' teaching at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And it is to them that now Jesus turns and speaks. And what Jesus says is essentially a rebuke of the nation of Israel. Jesus first, verse 10, commends the centurion's faith to the crowds. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He contrasts the faith of the centurion with the lack of faith amongst Israel. And Jesus is really emphatic about this. He doesn't just say, I haven't found such faith. He says, truly, I tell you. Pay attention. This is important, crowd. There's no one in the nation of Israel that Jesus has encountered up to this point who has faith like this Roman centurion. That doesn't mean Jesus hasn't encountered people with true faith in Christ up to this point, but it does mean that the centurion is really a paradigm of confident trust in Christ, unsurpassed in Israel so far. 
Now again, think about this from the perspective of a first century Jewish reader. You're saying that about that guy? This idol-worshipping Roman oppressor has greater faith than anyone else Jesus has found in Israel? If anyone should have faith in the Messiah, shouldn't it be an Israelite? After all, they had the promises, the scriptures, they had the covenants, they had the law. And yet it is not the crowds following Jesus, but the centurion who's commended for his faith. To a first century Jew, this would have been backwards, upside down. That's not the guy who should get the gold star here. But Jesus doesn't stop with a mere commendation. That's not where he ends his discussion. In fact, he uses the example of the centurion to explicitly rebuke Israel's lack of faith in a way that reveals the true nature of the kingdom of God and how it is not based on ethnicity at all. Look what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, who are the many here? Who, who are the many Jesus refers to? Well, they are Gentiles. They're Gentiles. Jesus says they're going to come from east, from west. This is a way of speaking, right, uh, that, that really refers to the entire region around Judea, which was filled with Gentiles, right? Jesus is saying that these many Gentiles found to the east and west, all around the world, in fact, will be found reclining a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is quite a picture. It's quite a significant statement to first century Jews. Now, put your thumb in Matthew and just turn back to Isaiah 25 with me. Isaiah chapter 25. In this chapter, the prophet Isaiah is really describing the fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven. Um, what, we, what we call the restoration of all things or the new creation. That's what Isaiah is describing here. And starting at verse 6, here's what we read. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Just think about that text for a second. Okay, this is, again, speaking about the time in which all of God's people will be with him on his holy mountain. And notice how this is portrayed as a feast. As a feast, right? There's a table there. It's full of food, of wine. It is a celebratory time. And notice that this feast is not just for Israel, but for who? All peoples. All peoples. Isaiah goes on. He says, Deaf, the veil that's spread over all humanity, will be taken away, not just for Israel, but for all peoples. Now this is the feast Jesus is referring to when he says that many Gentiles will come and feast with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It is this final, ultimate, awesome eternal celebratory feast after God's redemptive plan has come to its absolute final culmination. That's the table that they will be reclining at. That, that position reclining, that's a posture of full freedom of enjoyment of feasting. 
That's a good place to be, in other words. Reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But you realize what Jesus is saying to the Jewish crowd here. He's, he's saying, you see this centurion who has this faith? Well, there, there will be many, many more like him in the kingdom of heaven. There will be many, many more like this Gentile in the kingdom of heaven, feasting with those who you Israelites claim as your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is a very different picture than what the crowd would have expected as far as the kingdom of heaven goes. And the Jewish people, especially during this time, had this idea that the Messiah would come, he would overthrow the Romans, and establish a kingdom of Jewish supremacy on the earth, right? Uh, in which the Gentiles were subject to them. Um, after all, right, because they're descended ethnically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they'd be entitled to this, right? This is their rightful inheritance, this, this kingdom. But here Jesus is saying that this Gentile Roman soldier and people like him, the very ones who Jesus was supposed to overthrow, will be found in the kingdom of heaven at the very same table with the most revered figures in Judaism. And that would be controversial enough. That would be shocking enough, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He pushes the envelope even more. He doubles down again. Not only will there be many Gentiles feasting with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, but look at verse 12 of Matthew chapter 8. Look what Jesus says will be happening during this feast. While the sons of the kingdom of, uh, excuse me, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. That's a strong statement. And this really is a true reversal on the way uh, that the first century Jews would have been thinking about this. Right? The sons of the kingdom refers to them to the Israelites, who by all accounts should have inherited the kingdom. They had the promises, they had the law, they had those special covenants, right? But ultimately, what was their trust and confidence in? It was in their Jewishness, in their descent from Abraham, in their attempts to obey the law of Moses. Right? They assumed that just because they happened to be related to a man thousands of years before, that they would just be simply ushered into the kingdom. The bouncer would let him through, right? As one commentator writes, in popular Jewish thought, it would be taken for granted that while not every Jew would be worthy of a place at the banquet, it would be a Jewish gathering, while non-Jews would find themselves in the darkness. To the, be the people of God meant, for practical purposes, to be Jewish. But that was the mindset of the day. And yet Jesus says here, it is those sons of the kingdom who rejected him, who lacked the faith of the centurion, that will be cast out. And as we go through the gospel narratives, that's exactly what we see. Jesus' own people rejecting him. And the Jewish leaders, right, seeking to put the Messiah to death and, and doing so. The very sons of the kingdom that should have received the king murdered him. Now, Jesus isn't saying there won't be Jews in the kingdom of heaven. Of course there will be, right? Absolutely. But what Jesus is making abundantly clear here is that ethnicity counts for nothing when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter who your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was. It doesn't matter. What matters is one thing, faith. That's it. 
the Apostle Paul takes Jesus' teaching here and really goes deep with it. Turn over to Romans chapter 4 briefly with me. Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul was himself a Jewish man. But he understood what Jesus was saying here very well. We'll start in verse 9. Speaking about the blessing of salvation, and Paul writes, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, meaning the, the Jewish people, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that their father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see what Paul's saying there. He's saying Abraham and the blessings and the promises God gave to Abraham are not just for his Jewish descendants. They're for the ones who are his descendants by faith, who have the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Circumcision's not the point. It's faith. That's really the mark here. The true child of Abraham is not the one descended from him, not the one who tries to keep the law, but the one who has the same kind of faith, like the centurion, regardless of ethnicity. In fact, those who trusted in their descendants from Abraham while rejecting the Messiah, Jesus says, will actually suffer the eternal destruction that the Jews believed was reserved for the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus tells the crowd that those in Israel who reject him will be cast out into outer darkness. There's a picture here of unbelieving Israelites being thrown out away from the feast, away from the kingdom of heaven. And this, will, this place, according to Jesus, is a place of wailing, of gnashing of teeth. In other words, it's a place of punishment, of suffering. Um, it's really serious stuff here. This is another way that eternal punishment is described, the outer darkness. It's another term for hell a place of torment and a pain, and it is a place that's reserved for those who reject God and his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's not dependent on ethnicity either. These Israelites would have never thought of themselves as in danger of hell. But Jesus tells them that this, this is exactly their perilous situation. Without faith, these Israelites, you, me, anyone, anyone is in danger of hell. Faith in Christ that brings one into the kingdom of heaven. It is true faith that makes one a spiritual Israelite. Jesus is abundantly clear to the crowds here. Ethnic descent from Abraham entitles no person to special treatment or special blessing. It is through faith alone, in Christ alone, that one is truly included in the kingdom of heaven. And again, you can imagine the reception this may have received from Jesus' Jewish hearers. But this is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. It is not an Israelite kingdom. It is not a Jewish kingdom, but a kingdom composed of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. United by one thing amidst their diversity and differences, their faith in the living God and in his Son. But this reality challenged the Jews of Jesus' day to rethink their understanding of the kingdom. And as a result, it would challenge them to rethink the ways in which promises in the Old Testament would be fulfilled. 
Uh, and Jesus' words here might actually challenge the way that some of us view end times things. Right? If your view of the end times is completely centered around the ethnic nation of Israel, uh, you might actually be in danger of understanding things like the very crowds Jesus is rebuking here. Instead, Jesus' words call us to understand the end times, right, as, as, we, as we commonly talk about, in the context of the kingdom of heaven, composed of true spiritual Israel, those who have faith in him, regardless of their genetic claim to Abraham. God's plan has always been to save both Jews and Gentiles, to include both in his kingdom. The church is not plan B. It's a continuation of plan A. But Jesus hasn't forgotten about the faithful centurion. He hasn't gotten carried away. Let's look at our last verse, verse 13, the uh, servant's condition healed. Jesus turns back to the centurion now. And he says to him, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Jesus tells the centurion, go back home. Nothing more is needed. Your servant will be healed. And don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying because the centurion had great enough faith, the servant was healed. Right? Jesus is not teaching a health and wealth message here that unless you have enough faith, you uh, will not be healed or your prayers will not be answered. That's not what is happening at all. You know, as D.A. Carson says, the content of the miracle would be what was expected by the centurion's faith. The centurion believed that Christ could heal his servant, and Jesus grants the request the centurion made out of his faith. And as Matthew tells us in verse 13, the servant was healed at that very moment. As Jesus utters the words, it is done, his authority and his power resulted in the healing being accomplished. He didn't, know, he didn't need to go to the centurion's house, but displayed his authority Clearly. Again, as we read through this passage, we see that this account is as much about Jesus' authority as it is about the centurion's response to that authority in faith. Matthew does continue to highlight the authority of Christ here in his ability to heal the sick, but we see another theme at work here, the commendation of true faith. And, and yet, so far, the faith we've seen in Matthew chapter 8 does not come from those we would expect. From a leper, from a Roman centurion, both of whom were excluded from Jewish society and looked at with disdain. Yet Matthew shows us that Jesus is not concerned about those things. He's concerned about one thing, faith. Faith. Now make no mistake about faith. Sometimes people have this idea that to believe God exists is sufficient faith. Curtis read this morning from Psalm 19. Everybody already knows God exists. That's not faith. Faith is trusting that God, trusting that Christ. That he is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do, that his work on the cross is sufficient for your sins with no works added from you. That is faith. That's what we see in the centurion. It's what we saw in the leper. Friends, do you trust Christ like the centurion did? Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you trust his authority to handle your struggles, your problems, your sin? If your answer to that question is yes, then let's, let's ask one more question. Does that faith result in you actually bringing those things to Jesus? Right? Church people will talk about, right, we believe in Jesus, we trust Jesus, he's great, he's powerful, but do we actually bring those things to him like the centurion did? Or do we just talk about how 
much power our God has while keeping all those things to ourselves to deal with. It was the faith of the centurion that motivated him to come to Jesus in the first place. And Matthew's account gives us good reason to trust Jesus. He doesn't turn away those who come to him by faith. He doesn't turn away those who seek his help. Of course, Jesus doesn't walk the earth in flesh anymore. He's seated at the Father's right hand, but that in no way means his authority or power is diminished. So as you and I have difficulties and struggles and problems, burdens on our heart, Christ is still able and ready to help us. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By faith and with confidence, let us go to Jesus, who is able to help us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, you are an amazingly compassionate Savior. Lord, you have all authority, all power, all glory and all might. You are worthier than anyone else to be called Lord. And yet, you would help people like us. What are we compared to the things you've made, Lord? The stars, the heavens, the oceans, the sequoias, the mountains. What are we compared to that? But yet, Lord Jesus, your heart is first and foremost for your people. Your heart is first and foremost for those who come to you by faith seeking your help. Oh, Lord, let that be an encouragement to us. Let that be a comfort to us that we have a Savior who is always able and ready to hear and help in our time of need. We have a Savior who has full authority over our situations, who is sovereign over those things, and who brings about truly good things from that in our sanctification. Lord, would you help us to trust you more? Would you help us to bring whatever we have going on, whatever we are dealing with, whatever we struggle with, to you? not holding on to it as we bring it to you, Lord, but with open hands, giving those things to you fully and asking for your help. Lord, help us to have faith like the centurion did, both on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of others. We thank you, Lord, that you are always there, seated at the Father's right hand in power and in glory, and yet still so merciful and eager to help. We give you all glory and pray this in your name.